Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I don't mind coming here. Happy Friday, guys. 3.05 DGS. One hour from now is uh, round two of the DGS Catholic Fish Smackdown. Uh, Matt Pauly joins us from Jupiter. Hey, Matt. Hey. How'd it go today? Uh, they won, so that's good. Um, Matthew Libertor becomes the first starting pitcher to go three innings. He gave up uh, a run on two hits, giving up a home run. Gordon Graceppo threw two more scoreless innings. He looked good. Uh, Jose Fermin went three for three. Uh, a couple hits in the game for Alec Burleson. Interesting, those two guys might be the two guys who are most negatively impacted by uh, Brandon Crawford's addition, and they've both been hitting well. Uh, Jordan Walker had a hard-hit triple, so those are kind of the, the headlines hmm. from today's game. Interesting, uh, you know, just talking about Burleson, I think I've seen three of his hits that have been kind of soft contact, opposite field hits, and you look at it, and this is where you and I talk a lot about what results matter, right? Because, like, Matthew Libertor going three innings is probably more important than whether or not he gave up a run or a home run here or there, Um, but he had one bad pitch, essentially, and was good outside of that. You know, a team is not going to look at Alec Burleson and say he's hitting 545. They're going to be looking at quality of contact. What was the situation? You know, what we what did we want him to do? And he's kind of a mixed bag in that regard. Uh, but if, if he's not hitting the ball with authority, that's probably going to work against him. Yeah, probably. Although, you know, it's interesting because last year he hit the ball really, really hard and had very little to show for it. Now he's not hitting the ball hard and does have something to show for it. So, <laughs> this is, by the way, I don't know. For yeah. everybody listening, this is why batting average doesn't tell you enough. Everybody that uh, wants correct. to live on batting average because a single can be hit 110 miles an hour and it can be hit 60 miles an hour. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily tell you the quality of the contact. It just tells you what the result was. When you look at the things that tell you about the quality of contact, that's what teams are evaluating more and also situational, right? So if he's up there with a runner on third base, your job is to get the run home. If you do that, you're going to get credit because you did your job. So let's get a little bit in the weeds. When when someone's hitting them soft like Burleson is, I know it can work both ways, but generally, is it because you were fooled by the pitch and you just caught a piece of it or because your swing velocity is not what it should have been? Uh, I mean, that's a... That's a tough question to answer. Generally, you're getting a little, you're not, if you're not making solid contact, it's because you didn't identify the pitch correctly and get your swing on it. It's, yeah, exit velocity is not so much connected to uh, how hard you swing it. It's more about the percentage of contact onto the ball that you have. So, yeah, it's more about being fooled than the other, but it's, 
it's hard to answer that question in a simple way. And a lot of it's game plan, okay? So as an example, one of the things that I saw, and I, I think, I'm not sure if you were there, Matt, when he talked about it, but one of the things I've seen Burleson talk about was maybe taking some of those pitches that he put into play with less authority last year and swinging more at the things that he can do more damage on. So there are pitches that hitters can hit that they probably shouldn't. And one of the ways it gets put is, I'd rather you be in an 0-1 count than be 0-for-1 on the day, right? So if that pitch is not something you can do damage on, you let it go. So some of it is, how aggressive are you? So if there's a runner on third, for example, uh, that I was talking about, Dave, well, then maybe you're going to be a little more aggressive because putting the ball in play can mean a, directly mean a run, which is a big deal. If there's nobody on base or the runner's on first base instead, well, you need to do more damage if you're going to drive in a run, so then you're going to change your approach. So, mm-hmm. that again, that's why, even if it's not super hard contact, he may have still done a tremendous job depending on the count, the pitch that he was given, and the circumstance and what his job is in that moment. So that's why it's more complicated than just batting average is yeah. what I'm trying to get to. How is Edmonds doing? Uh, he is still um, not... In a week or so, they're going to reevaluate him. Um, I think there's some hope in the organization that he's going to be ready for opening day. I think if you've seen this before, uh, at this point, I, I think I'd be somewhat surprised on that. I think his season's yeah. going to start uh, a little bit later. Just you read between the lines on everything, it feels like we're getting to the point where it's going to be really tough for him to be available for opening day. Yeah. So, like, I mean, especially with the wrist. You know, we're not talking about a broken bone that just needs time to heal. Wrists can have you can have setbacks. And if you rush that, even if you're technically healthy, you might not be right for months. So you got to make sure you get that right before you get before you push it. So if if you're saying Matt, what another week for another eval? If the, if the eval comes back like okay, green light go, you can you're clear. He could be ready for opening day, but if it's any more than that, probably not. And, and here's the startling thing. Maybe startling is too strong of a word, but you'll see where I'm going on this. What we've heard from Oliver Marmel is. Some days Edmund comes to the ballpark and the wrist feels great. Yep. And sometimes Edmund comes to the ballpark and the wrist feels terrible. So there's no consistency to it yet. So what that tells me is you're just you're you, you need a straight line in terms of recovery for you to even start to have an idea of when he might be available and that straight line just doesn't exist yet. So is Carlson playing center field now? Yeah, and, and the bigger question is because who's going to play? You know, if Edmonds starts the season on the injured list, well, then Dylan Carlson's going to play center field most of the time. But he can't play it all the time. So the next question is who's going to play center field when when Carlson isn't out there? You could move Newt Bar over, but right now the organization certainly seems like they're they're somewhat averse to that. So a guy like Michael Ciani, who we're not really talking about, he could find himself on the opening day roster just by default because he's somebody that you can put out in center field. And it, I mean, the outside case could be a prospect like Victor Scott, but only if he tears it up. Like if he makes it so you don't have a choice. And actually, you know, Matt, the more I think about it, he would probably have to be the one that supplants Carlson. Like he would have to be so good that you're going to play him every day as opposed to you're going to come up and be the backup. How close is he to that? Uh, I... I don't. It's, I think he's going to make his big league debut at some point this year, but I think it's going to look somewhat like the Mason Wynn situation because, yeah, if he if he breaks camp with the team, he has to play basically every single right, day. You right. can't leave him on the bench. So then Carlson is be, back to being that fourth outfielder. So Carlson is going to be given every opportunity in right. the world, uh, assuming that Edmund is not. And look, 
if Edmonds going to miss the first week of the season, you're no not putting deal. Victor Scott in there Correct. Be- just because he had a better spring than Dylan Carlson. So for people like myself who don't know the uh, uh, you know the club system as well as you guys do, who is Victor Scott? How good can he be? Who would he remind you guys of? Oh, uh, from a base stealing standpoint, a lot of people are comparing him to Vince Coleman. He's Ooh. he has yeah. incredible speed. He's doing something that's kind of cool. He keeps a notebook on him, and anytime somebody like says something or somebody gives him a tip, he takes the notebook out of his pocket and writes it down. Oliver Marmel was asked whether or not that was his idea, and Marmel said no. He doesn't know where that came from. But this guy is an absolute sponge. He's an electric defensive outfielder he's an electric base dealer and just the next thing to come is for him to be uh the consistent offensive player yeah he just has to prove that he can hit higher level pitching and if he does i mean the speed is off the charts like if you were going to rate the fastest players in baseball like the whole sport yeah he's in the conversation um and he's a tremendous defensive player so you've got that i mean speed really helps in center field if he can hit as well as he did last year because he hit really well last year yeah he's going to be an everyday center fielder for a long time but it's still an if at this point. Dumb question. How do AAA guys get good enough to hit major league pitching without hitting major league pitching? That's a great question. Yeah, that's why you see guys yo-yo so much. Because what the I think one of the most important places that progress happens for a ball player is that first time they call, get called up to the big leagues, they completely fail and then they go back to AAA, and you got that AAA hitting coach that comes in and says, all right, now let's get to work. And you start to work on the things that got exposed at the big league level. That's where guys really make it sometimes. Yeah, so the the truth is that you don't know somebody can handle major league pitching until they handle major league pitching. Like that, That's just an absolute truth. But you can see signs at each level, right? So typically at the younger levels, A ball, you know, high A, low A, you're seeing a lot of guys that throw hard because everybody throws hard in professional baseball. You're seeing guys with good breaking balls, but they don't really locate well enough. So they make more mistakes. So we know you learn that, okay, you can handle velocity. You can hit the mistakes that those young guys are going to make. You start moving up double A and triple A and especially triple A because there you've got pitchers all over the place that have major league time. Some of them are 30 years old, 32 years old. So now you're seeing people with more of the the mental side of the game, their experience, people that can command their pitches and do different things. And if you can handle that, that's your sign. All right, maybe this guy can handle the big leagues. And then once you're there, you got to do it. Like it but at each level, it's more of, are you handling these new challenges? Because the older you get, the more those pitchers are capable of doing. I've always wondered that. So guys in A-ball, it's not like they're throwing 82-mile-an-hour no, fastballs. No. no. No, they're just they're just 19 and 20 year olds that throw 97 and they don't usually know where it's going. And sometimes to throw a strike, they kind of have to throw it down the middle. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, those strikes move to quadrants. So instead of down the middle, it's going to be lower part of the zone on the outside half or lower part in the inside half. And, you know, I'm 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 dividing the strike zone in four there. Right. When you get older, you may be, you probably divide that more like by nine. So three zones high, three zones middle, three zones low, because that's how the command is refined as you get older. Wheels, how much has the art of catching changed? Say, for example, you brought Johnny Bench in his prime. I know he'd be great, but when would he be like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? This is really weird. Yeah, I mean, so the ideas behind throwing runners out really haven't changed much. Um, I don't think he'd have any problems adapting to, to things like that. But the way that pitches are received is done a lot differently because we've learned what works, right? I mean, you know, what teams have done is study, 
Here's how the pitches that are on the borderline of the strike zone, the ones that get called and the ones that don't. And they're looking at, what would you say, Matt? Tens of thousands of pitches, if not more than that, over 10 years of, you know, this zone gets called if you do this. And so there's some technique things that have changed. But like the physical part of how do you catch the ball? How do you keep it from moving your glove? Some of those things are similar. But the setup, it's a lot of it is more pre-pitch than it is in pitch. So what they want now, and I'm sure that, I don't know if the guys talked about it all, Matt, but when you watch the catchers do drills, everything starts below the strike zone with the target. Now the target will be up where they want it, but when the pitcher's delivering it, usually the the glove will go below the zone and then you work up because you make everything low look like a strike when you're catching it. And, and you know, sometimes pitchers want catchers to set up in a certain way as yeah, well. Yeah, That's right, that, right. You know, Sonny Gray has come in and he's had a lot of communication with Wilson Contreras about, you know, where are you going to set up? And sometimes if the catcher wants to set up somewhere where the pitcher doesn't want him set up, the yep. pitcher almost has to look at a different spot to throw. So it, there, there's truly an art to it. And the art is not an across the board art. It's a, yeah. it's a very individual thing, not just for catchers, but for the various pitchers they're working with mm-hmm. as well. Hey, Matt, overall, I know you're such a student of sports and you played sports yourself. Overall, being down there, what have you been most impressed with? Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's something mental. Maybe it's more of a vibe. But what is, have you walked away like, wow, these guys are really different humans? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. It's just, uh, look, they do things that none of us can do, and they make it look easy. Like even the guy, <laughs> the, the word, the guy, okay, so Buddy Kennedy just got let go when Brandon Crawford came in. The things that he can do are remarkable and amazing and he can't make it onto the 40 man roster. Like it's just, it's the, I always say this about this is the, my basketball analogy. And I know you're asking me a baseball question, but this is the description I always give. Go to an NBA game and watch guys warm up. And the 15th guy on the bench who never plays doesn't miss a shot during warmups. Like these athletes are just so different and so amazing in what they can do. And then you watch a Sonny Gray, you watch a Nolan Arnauto, you watch a Paul Goldschmidt, the guys who do this at an elite level, and you see the work that they put in to make it happen. It's just, it's it's borderline superhuman. Have a great weekend, Matt. Appreciate it. All right, thanks. You always knew to marry well. Welcome back, guys. DGS. Well, I'm guessing this is going to be national news. I was just watching a press conference with the chairman of the Freedom Caucus of Missouri, and they are calling for a ban on any and all frozen embryos. So uh, he was saying, look, I know it's going to be more expensive, but each time you do IVF, you create one embryo, a fresh one, and you implant it, and that's it. Because we don't want frozen children laying around because they're not dead and they're not alive. And you're just going to have to pay the extra cost. Good luck with that. They have great takes, don't they? It's it's not. Okay, let's put aside the cost for one second, the exorbitant cost. What about the emotional trauma you're putting these women through? The hormones they're injecting themselves with in order to make this happen. I mean, it's cruel. I'll just say it it is cruel. Well, think about it this way, too. Part of the reason that they're using more than one embryo is because they screen them for the things that might go wrong. So how many miscarriages does a woman have to go through to get the right one when you're only doing one at a time, when you're diminishing the odds of it working by only doing one? Yeah. 
And I mean, that I agree with Rach. That, that's Missouri, cruel. It seems like we are in a race to always be the dumbest or the most well, conservative like, or the most strident or something. And it's just it feels so transparent that no one in this state was talking about this until Alabama did. Something sure. About, and now it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, we don't like IVF. We're not going to do yeah, IVF. You put anymore. something in front of them. They go like, oh, yeah, let's be real. You know, D's about this. Uh, Dave Murray joins us. Hello, Dave. Hello there. How did we do on the forecast yesterday? Uh, we're up to about 20,000 right now. Nice. And, and that will grow over the weekend. Uh, people tend to find it because it's a lengthy thing to read. So they kind of, oh, okay, let, let me look, scan this really quick, and then they'll go back and really look at it. Very nice. Um, what are we looking like for the weekend? Springtime. It's all about springtime. For this evening, a lot of clouds around, temperatures in the 40s, so it's chilly. 35 for the overnight low as we clear out. So tomorrow will be chilly out the door first thing in the morning, but sunshine and warmer Saturday afternoon, a jump to 69 degrees. 82 is the record, not even close to that. Saturday night. Partly to mostly clear skies, increasing wind, 49 for the low on Sunday. Sunny, windy, and warm. I think Sunday there'll be some haze around from the Texas wildfires. Those fires are also in portions of Oklahoma and Arkansas. 78 for the high on Sunday. 85 is the record from 1974. Only 58 for the low Sunday night and Monday, partly sunny. But there'll be some scattered showers and thunderstorms developing Monday afternoon, 75 degrees, and a real good shot of at least rain and some thunderstorms on Monday night into early Tuesday. A lot of questions on how severe that will be. I don't think it's a severe weather outbreak, nothing widespread, but mm-hmm. we'll keep an eye on that over the weekend. Dave, when do things, I know everything is on a different timeline, but in general, when do things start budding out and coming alive? You know, everything is on, you know, the, um, you know, there are a couple of junipers starting to, to kind of sprout a little bit. There's some elm pollen starting to show up. So it it's a gradual thing for everything. Usually the last thing to come out is the oak tree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it, it's over the next six weeks, six weeks, it will, will kind of come out. I have a question for you. So uh, I know that uh, you're sort of a horticulturist, arborist, and you love gardening. Yes. And I know a part of that is manipulating the plants. You prune them at this time. You do this when you do that. Well, nature didn't do that. So how is it that we have learned to improve upon nature? If, if nature wanted it pruned, wouldn't it figure out a way to do it? It'd do it by wind. Mm-hmm. Wind and thunderstorms and natural pruning. I don't know. I think we just like to mess around Fiddle. with stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's like roses. You cut your roses back. Uh, you know, do you have to? So some people say, yes, you absolutely have to. Other people say, nah, just let them go. Headlines, Rage. Brought to you by Schnooks. Get personalized savings delivered to you in an instant with the Schnooks Rewards app. All right. This is a little bit of a surprise to me, but millennials are poised to become the richest generation in history. Saw this. Because there's going to be a huge transfer of wealth coming up. According to the annual wealth report by global real estate consultancy, Knight Frank, over the next 20 years, the silent generation are those typically born from 1928 to 1945. And the baby boomers born between 46 and 64 will hand over the reins to those born from 81 to 96 when they pass on their assets. They're going to see $90 trillion of assets move between generations. So inheritance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I wish I would have. I, I wish that would have been one, <laughs> one generation earlier. <laughs> yeah, but don't you have plans to, to hand some of that down? Yeah, I mean, probably. You're, get, you're getting up to that point where you should at least be thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean... I'm pretty honest. I don't like to brag, but I think each kid should get hundreds. 
of yeah. dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of stack of one. Yeah. Here's a stack of ones yeah. for you. Yeah, you know those little books of ones you used to get Bunch in graduate high school? Yeah. <laughs> I can get the coin collection. That's worth something. Uh, former President Trump says that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is, quote, absolutely on his shortlist for potential running mates. This shortlist no is getting kind of long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, also, uh, you know, Tim Scott is considered to be a front runner. Ron DeSantis. I saw on Fox News the other day, Tulsi Gabbard is on the shortlist. She ran as a Democrat in 2020, I'm pretty sure, but she has uh, flipped over to the other side and is now apparently being considered to be, I'm sure it won't be her, but it's just do kind of you, amazing that she's on that do list. Do you guys think there are enough sane people left around him to push him to pick someone sane? Or do you think no. that now it's just the circus is in town and he could pick Ramaswamy or someone like that? I don't think it's about sane or not. I just think he has settled in with his group of people and during January 6th and after the 2020 election, the people who were ready to move on from the election referred to themselves as team normal. And a lot of those are, you know, people you've seen testify and stuff since yeah. January 6th. Those people are all gone. Yeah. They're not there anymore. Um, let's see. The first U.S. spacecraft on the moon in decades officially sut- shuts down a week after landing sideways. Uh, it fell silent yesterday. Uh, it did break a leg at touchdown and tipped over near the lunar south pole, Odysseus. It did last longer than the company anticipated after it landed on its side. So I'm just laughing because I'm like, that's an analogy for my life. I made it to the moon, then I fell over and stopped, <laughs> yeah. stopped uh, making I, sounds. I, I keep having, having this vision that it, it falls over and it's like, oh, I'm hurting. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's just laying there for all of eternity. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> The first stadium built for a National Women's Soccer League club is ready to open in Kansas City. This is pretty cool. CPKC Stadium is one of the few facilities in the world that has been constructed expressly for the use of female athletes. Cool. Yeah, pretty neat. And my final story here, Walt Disney World is raising prices. I'm sure that's not a surprise to anyone because everyone's raising prices, but, you know, that's a popular vacation spot. So I thought I'd let the people know. It looks like they're going up in 2025. Uh, and it, as of yesterday, prices for Disney World passes started at one hundred and nine dollars for park goers aged ten and o- older. Um, the cheapest prices listed in the coming months uh, are listed at one hundred and nineteen dollars. Okay, what's yeah. some fun facts? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone know what an aptronym is? A p t r o n y m aptronym. I'd never heard of it. It's a dinosaur. Nope. It is uh, a a word. Uh, a person's name that is perfectly suited for them, like Usain Bolt mm. or Thomas Crapper, who invented the toilet. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like if I made baseball gloves, I would be an apt right. There yeah. you go. Very cool. So my uh, my ancestors, the yeah. ones that made the wheels. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty yeah. much right. I mean, I, I've that's... researched that, and that's pretty much it. Like my family made gloves. They're like, Glover. Hey. There's, probably, there's probably a guy named Namer who Hello, just walked Glover. around doing that. <laughs> Johnny Namer. This one freaked me out a little bit. There are no muscles in your fingers. The muscles in your palm and forearm do all the work. What's this though? I don't. Never even thought of about. No. Is that just skin there? I guess just tendons and. I wonder if that's why arthritis hurts so much in your fingers. I don't know. Because I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Man, that's why speculating finger exercises over the years. I didn't get my fingers all muscly. There you go. Yeah, you could have made it like a bicep muscle with your (laughs) finger. Here, watch this. 
Until the 1850s, more than 40% of people born worldwide would die before they turned five. How many? 40%. Oh, wow. 40%. Dude. Right? Crazy. Taylor Swift's producer, Jack Antonoff, compares questioning Taylor's songwriting ability to challenging someone's faith in God. Wow. Maybe a little, maybe a tad I, over the top. Yeah, I mean, I think she is objectively a great song. I mean, she knows how to write a song. Just look at the numbers, look at how many charts she's topped. But calm down, Jack. It's all right. Uh, the booth from the season finale of The Sopranos is on eBay right now. Actual for how booth? much? The actual booth. It's going for sixty-three grand. It's less than I thought. Yeah, me too. Figured somebody would be goofy about that. Would you want that if you were rich? No. Nah. Well, maybe. Depends on where you could put it, you know, if you could really duplicate something with it. Yeah. Uh, Finally, researchers have found that the genetic quirk that made our early ancestors stop growing tails happened around 25 million years ago. Oh. Hmm. Don't you wish you had a tail? (laughs) Not really, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if everyone else else had one. What yeah. if it was like a kangaroo tail that could help you, like, jump and stuff? It's a conversation yeah. starter. <laughs> you have to get all new jeans, though. Hey, you guys, I know no we're getting ready to go. Have you guys ever seen the Jay Moore thing where he talked to Christopher Walken, and Christopher Walken asked him, like, would you rather be able to fly or have a tail? Because I'd rather have a tail. No. <laughs> That's great. It's awesome. Thanks, Dave. Enjoy. DG Ask Catholic Fish Smackdown at the top of the hour. It's George Mayhe, food and wine editor of uh, St. Louis Magazine. My son, Nick, Nepo Baby. And uh, <laughs> then we have Kurt Belland, who has uh, uh, Zumi and is a chef and a business owner. And I think we're saying it for the first time on the air, Rachel's boyfriend. Yeah, I've, oh. I've not said this on the air yet because I just felt awkward. Like last week during the fish fry, I didn't want to be like, and my boyfriend's yeah. here. <laughs> well, but he is. It's a little, aw- it's a little awkward because he was dating Wheeler right before this. So I mean, it's... I'm cool with it, though. <laughs> I, I sanctioned it. You got big yeah. shoulders. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, man. Big plans hey, life changes, you know. So let's get to know Kurt a little bit. So uh, first of all, let's, let's hear about Izumi. Okay, so Izumi, it's hard to describe. Uh, so technically, I, I like to say it's a food truck. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, my main goal is to just serve uh, kind of a more authentic Japanese experience than I've been able to get in St. Louis, and yeah. it's not to... To downplay any other Japanese food in St. Louis, it's just I wanted to make something that was real and something that I would enjoy. Yeah. And so that's kind of exactly what I'm doing with this. Yeah. So your mom's side of the family is Japanese. Yes. And how big was that in your sky growing up? Oh, I mean, it was just a nice dichotomy of, you know, my Japanese mother uh, born in Japan uh, and, you know, uh, reconciling that with my my father's side of the family, which is Italian, and it was good just luck a, there, buddy. Yeah, and it, was just, <laughs> it was just a really really nice way to see kind of two sides from yeah. the beginning, and so just just having that observant perspective was a really big blessing. Did you up. get the full? culinary punch in the face from both sides like for on the italian side were you having the sunday dinners and things like that uh yes yes and no i mean because it's it's a big spectrum you know in terms of uh immigrant food even first generation immigrants um you know how they define and how they like kind of call back to that culture and food that they were, were raised on that's uh 
it's a big spectrum. And so, like, uh, just uh, just having a good uh, way of of seeing kind of the differences between, you know, having food at, you know, on Sunday dinner with my family and, you know, maybe having the chance to go to Japan with my family, visit my family, and just to compare and contrast, you yeah. know. And with with your mom, was it 80% Japanese food? She'd throw a burger in there now and then, or was it all the time? Uh, a decent amount. I mean, it's it's just, you know, it's based off of, you know, what you got in the in the pantry. And we always had rice. We always had Kewpie mayo. Uh, we always had these different, uh, you know, ingredients that, you know, uh, you know, we would love to have chili, but we put it on rice sort yeah. of thing. And yeah. it was just a really great blend of, uh, you know. Just food that tastes really delicious. So let's pretend that there's a real dumb person out there who just thinks of Asian food. Mm-hmm. How would you uh, differentiate, differentiate Japanese food? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, definitely in Japan, one big characteristic is a lot of the storefronts and restaurants. Oftentimes, they'll they'll singularly focus on a certain type of cuisine. You know, some places will just do say, like, ramen, ramen shops, and that's all they do, basically, except for some, you know, appetizers or something, or there's a tonkatsu place that just does these uh, fried breaded pork cutlets, and there's a lot more um, singularity and focus, I would say, than compared to maybe a Japanese place in America that does have to do, you know, ramen, tonkatsu, sushi, They have to represent the entire... Yeah. I never thought of that. That Wow, that, what a yeah. responsibility to be the Japanese place. Yes, exactly. And so with, you know, a, a very wonderful uh, Midwestern city like St. Louis, you know, you're just not going to have as many examples yeah. as you do in, like, say, L.A. or Portland. So. How do people find you? How do people find Izumi? Ooh, the best way is on Instagram. Izumi, S.T. Lewis is the tag. Uh, and, you know, that's where I do most all of my marketing okay. exclusively. Except Excellent. for, you know, beautiful Camo X and the Dave Lover show. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> the big two is you the other right guy, yeah. <laughs> sure this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.